Episode 3 Revolting Times. Or how the 19th century middle classes succeeded in getting themselves into the House of Commons and the working classes didn't. In 1830, Britain had a new king. As the unmemorable William IV, filled in the gap between the Regency period and the Victorian era. So I suppose the style of architecture from my reign will be called William-esque, will it? Uh, maybe, Your Majesty? The general election that had to follow the accession of a new monarch saw a significant increase in the number of members committed to parliamentary reform. Many voters had been inspired by revolutionary events on the continent, where the middle classes demanded a say in the running of their countries, got massacred and then shut up about it. Although England had had a parliament since the 13th century, it's important to understand that it had never even pretended to be a democratic institution. It represented wealth, not people. It's almost as if you think your land is more important than the people who work it. Yes, and your point is? During the centuries when the ruling class was made up entirely of landowners, allocating seats according to property had seemed like a sensible way for them to organise things. But since the Industrial Revolution, wealth and influence was no longer confined to the aristocracy, while the Enlightenment and the French Revolution had introduced ideas of equality and democracy and other subversive notions that kept the King and the Duke of Wellington awake at night. Set against these modern criteria, the House of Commons was laughably unrepresentative. There had been calls for parliamentary reform for decades, and with huge new towns like Manchester, Birmingham and Leeds completely without representation, the situation had become intolerable. Voting was still seen as a privilege, not a right, but there was also a practical dimension to the issue. You needed an Act of Parliament to build a bridge or a road, to establish a park or build a pier. Without an MP to introduce a bill on your behalf, proposing major projects was subject to long planning delays that we can only imagine today. The Duke of Wellington claimed the parliamentary arrangement was already pure perfection. I cannot imagine how a better system might be devised, said the member for Teletubbyland. Members promptly demonstrated what a great system it was by deserting him for the opposition, to put the Whigs back in power. Both wings of the British ruling class were terrified of the masses and the constant spectre of revolution. It's just that the Whigs saw that by appeasing the middle classes, the revolution would be much less likely to happen, as there would be no one to organise the firing squad duty rota. The new government was headed by Earl Grey, remembered today more for his taste in tea than his great achievements in government. Right, I propose to introduce a reform act that will add a quarter of a million adult males to the 435,000 existing voters. Oh, Dad, this tea's disgusting! Did you rinse out the washing-up liquid? Tis the latest fashion, tea flavoured with bergamot. You'll get used to it. Now, most controversially of all, not all of these new voters will own their own property. Oh, bloody hell, I can't drink this. Haven't you got any PG tips? Tampering with the English cuppa and introducing notions of democracy was clearly going too far, and the House of Lords repeatedly blocked the measure while the king refused to create more peers to force the bill through. The Parliament of the landed gentry were leading the country to the brink. Throughout 1831 the mood darkened, and the British middle classes began to turn the screws.
Either you give us a say in things, or we won't volunteer to be local magistrates anymore. They're bluffing. They'd never do it. We mean it. No GPs, no sheriffs, no one to judge the Britain in Bloom competition. Please, we beg you. Think of the flower arrangers. The volunteers who made Britain's local government function were on strike. Many more withdrew their savings from the bank to create a financial crisis for the government. In some areas, political unions began drilling in the expectation of civil war. Eventually, even the Duke of Wellington had to accept that the Lord's obstruction of reform was tearing the country apart. And having already resigned in favour of Earl Grey, he now urged many of his fellow lords to cease voting against reform. As with Catholic emancipation a few years earlier, it needed the ultra-conservative Wellington to effect radical reform. It's like the Tories having the first woman Prime Minister, or New Labour introducing student loans. The other side could never have done it, because it would have been too typical of them. The first reformed Parliament met in 1833, and the old guard said the place would never be the same again, which it wasn't when the building promptly burnt to the ground. Um, excuse me, I I've only just been elected. Is it normal for flames to be sweeping through the corridors like that? Not sure. Best not say anything. We don't want to show our ignorance. While the Great Reform Act might have been a major milestone on Britain's road to democracy, there were still millions who were angry and frustrated that it hadn't gone further. And it was this that gave birth to the world's first working-class mass movement. Radicals in Europe must have gazed with envy across the Channel at the enormity and organisation of the movement that became known as Chartism. At last, the workers have united. Are they storming the royal palaces? Um, no. Have they seized members of the government and taken control of the army? Mm, not exactly. So what exactly are the masses doing to overthrow the old order? Uh, well, um, they've organised a very big petition. Oh. Chartism was a very British radical movement. Agitators broke into armament stores, dashed past the guns and helped themselves to all the clipboards. At secret training camps, volunteers were taught how to ensure that people didn't sign in the little box where you were supposed to print your address. Their specially trained elite petitioners could strip down and reassemble a fountain pen in under 14 seconds. The movement unified around the six points of the charter that were drawn up by the movement's founders. These six demands were... 1. Universal male suffrage. A suggestion to include votes for women in the campaign had been dropped very early on. 2. Constituencies of equal numbers. The Reform Act has still left huge discrepancies in parliamentary representation. 3. Payment for MPs. So anyone could stand for Parliament, not just men with private fortunes. 4. An end to the property-owning qualification for MPs. 5. A secret ballot to stop intimidation and bribery. 6. Annual parliaments, the only demand that was not finally met. So when someone at a rally shouted, What do we want? They all had to shout the extended response while counting out all the demands on their fingers until they got to five and the crowd went, Uh, and what's the sixth one? Oh yeah, and an end to the property-owning qualification for members of parliament. It was, I have a dream, but it will take a while to explain it all. 
1839, a massive petition was presented to the House of Commons, but members voted not even to receive it. The upper-class majority were still appalled by having entrepreneurs and industrialists in Parliament. They certainly weren't going to listen to representation from people who took sugar in their tea and had mum tattooed on their arms. The rejection pushed more radical elements in the movement to violence. It didn't help that the Chartists often held their meetings in the pub. After a few pints, their campaign slogan of Peace and order is our watchword soon turned to That Viscount Melbourne, he spilt my pint. There was sporadic rioting, and one disastrous insurrection did enormous harm to what had been perceived as a peaceful campaign. Armed Chartists stormed Westgate Hotel in Newport, South Wales? Oh, nothing can stop us now. As every revolutionary movement throughout history has understood, once you have the Westgate Hotel Newport, nothing can stop you. Aye, Newport Community Centre and the Baptist Chapel are bound to follow. It was claimed they intended this to be the signal for a national uprising, but in fact it was just a disorganised attempt to rescue some Chartist prisoners who were being held there. The authorities had packed the hotel with soldiers who fired into the crowd, killing over 20 and injuring many more. The leaders of the uprising were sentenced to death, later commuted to transportation, and the Chartist movement became tainted and divided. The government had always been terrified of the idea of working-class organisations. When six men from the tiny Dorset village of Tollpuddle had combined to protect their pitiful wages, they were prosecuted on the grounds that they had sworn an illegal oath and duly transported to Australia. The ensuing outcry earned them official lefty martyr status and ensured that forevermore they would be the subject of tiresome shouty plays by theatre and education companies doing bad West Country accents. Two more Chartist petitions were presented, one in 1842 and a third at the climax of the movement in 1848, a year of revolutions all across Europe. 50,000 protesters gathered on Kennington Common, while the 80-year-old Duke of Wellington organised the soldiers and cannons on every bridge across the Thames, in case they defied orders to remain south of the river. Fergus O'Connor, their increasingly unreliable leader, claimed an unconvincing five million signatures had been collected for the final appeal. But with so many people involved, it was no surprise that a few jokers had added one or two unlikely names to the list, including the Duke of Wellington, Mr Punch and Queen Victoria? Actually, maybe one did sign it. You know what it's like. Someone asks you to sign a petition, you agree just so as to avoid offence. These irregularities were seized upon to discredit the enormous achievement of the petition and obvious strength of public feeling, making it easier for the government to once again dismiss the entire campaign out of hand. The campaign petered out. Fergus O'Connor died in a lunatic asylum, and historians generally file the movement under the heading Disorganised Failures. But Chartism did eventually succeed. Within 20 years there were major extensions of the franchise, and all of the demands that they put on the agenda were eventually realised, with the exception of annual general elections, which frankly sounds like a bloody nightmare. The Chartists may not have had a Martin Luther King, but they were the civil rights movement of the UK, powerless protesters demanding democracy by peaceful means, even though their faith in Parliament was repeatedly shattered. 
What they also lack is a modern minority championing their place in history. Women are drawn to the suffragettes, the Irish look back at the Home Rule movement, but white working-class men have not been allowed to see themselves as an historically oppressed minority. Oh, look! There's a big sticker in the back of that white builder's van. What does it say? Remember the Chartists, is it? Um, well, nearly. Chelsea FC, Pride of London. Ah. Parliament's journey from landowner's talking shop to representative assembly was a slow and erratic evolution. But even before the new Palace of Westminster was completed in the late 1860s, some sections of the working classes had already gained the vote. It was these incremental reforms that just about kept violent political uprisings at bay, until universal male suffrage arrived in 1918. But none of it was granted without a struggle. Down the years, countless forgotten British men and women campaigned tirelessly for the right to vote. And it is them we have to thank for the wonderful, democratic institution that we so love and respect today. So, are you going to vote later? Oh, it's the election today. Uh, nah, I can't be bothered. <laughs>